so over my years of, of having conversations with uh, people who wouldn't consider themselves followers of Christ, uh, who aren't Christians, there's a pattern that I've noticed uh, of a perception that they have. There's a perception that Christianity and the Bible are just filled with a bunch of things that we aren't supposed to do uh, or aren't allowed to do. There's a commonly held belief out there that the Bible is just full of a bunch of don'ts. When people think about the commandments, they think of three words. Thou shalt not. That's what people, there's a perception out there that that's um, what Christianity and the Bible is all about. And they're, they're completely turned off by that idea. Um, and you know what? I don't really blame them. If that is the idea that they have of, of being a follower of Christ, is that it's just a bunch of, it's a list of things that we have to follow that um, we shouldn't do. I don't blame them for being turned off by that. But the reality is um, there's something that happens in the life of every single person who's placed their faith in Jesus, and that's that the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives. That uh, the Holy Spirit goes to work and, and brings us into a closer um, relationship with Christ and brings us into a closer image of the person of Christ. And that doesn't come about by us just simply following a list of things that we're not allowed to do. That would be uh, an incomplete recipe, if you will, to put it into um, uh, an image for you. Say that you've never had uh, muffins before, never made muffins before, and so someday you just get a, a, a desire to, to go and bake some muffins. And so you go online, you download a recipe for muffins, you print it out, and all that it says on that recipe is, don't add too much flour. Don't add too much salt. Don't cook it at too high a temperature. Don't overmix the batter. And that's all that you get. That's the only directions that you get. Um, the end product of that probably wouldn't look a whole lot like a muffin if you've never made muffins before. And uh, if you go and taste that, you might get to a point where you say, I don't like muffins. These aren't very good. Uh, or, or if you're a handy person out there, if you've ever been to Ikea, it's beautiful place. You go in there, you walk around, they have all these uh, living rooms set up, and you, you walk through, and you're like, oh, I mean, I just want all of that. I want to take this living room and transport it to my living room. Um, but say you've never been to Ikea before. You go there, you say, here's a chair that I want to buy. And so you go downstairs to buy that chair, but they don't give you a chair. They give you a box with everything you need for a chair. And so say you open that box up, you take out your instructions to make your Ikea chair, uh, and instead of good detailed instructions, what comes out are the, the instructions you get are uh, don't insert uh, bolt A into slot C, don't overexceed the weight limit, um, or you can fill in the blank of whatever else uh, would you wouldn't want to do with an Ikea chair when you're building it. But if that's all you had, your Ikea chair may end up looking something like that. It just wouldn't be quite right. And if you went and sat in that chair, you might say, I don't like Ikea. This isn't very comfortable. And I think that illustrates the danger of us just focusing on the don'ts found within God's Word, of the things that aren't beneficial. If we focus on just the don'ts, we might end up looking like that as a follower of Christ. And, and, and when asked which commandment of all of the commandments in the Law and the Prophets, was the greatest. Jesus didn't respond with uh, something that we shouldn't do, a don't. He responded with a do. 
In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, um, Jesus is asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That was a very important do that Jesus gives as the most important commandment. And I think um, we need to focus on both the do's and the don'ts in order to get a complete picture of what Christianity looks like. Because all of those things in that muffin recipe or in the Ikea um, directions, all of those things are good things. You shouldn't add too much flour. You shouldn't overmix your... your um, your muffin batter. Those are important things, but it's not enough. And so in today's passage that we're going to look at in 2 Timothy, we're going to see Paul instructing Timothy with both, with both do's and don'ts on how to deal with opponents of the gospel. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from this. If you're sitting here uh, and you aren't a follower of Christ, that you haven't made that decision, I think this is going to give you a good picture of, of both sides of that, of what um, our goal within being follower of Christ, uh, followers of Christ is. If you are sitting here and you are a follower of Christ, I think that what we can learn from this today would be very beneficial to us, especially given the season of plenty of conflicting viewpoints and opinions um, that we are in right now in the political arena of our country. So let me pray for us, and then we can look into God's Word and see what He has to say to us. Heavenly Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We pray and ask that your spirit come down and guide us through it, that it would be um, something more than head knowledge, that it would move us to action and would inspire us to complete the mission that you've given us, take the gospel to the end of the earth. So we thank you for Christ and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible in front of you, we're going to be hanging out today um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, taking a look at an excerpt from uh, verses 22 through 26. And so what I want to do is I want to read through um, those few verses and then go back and take a look at um, them on an individual level. And so we start in 2 Timothy 22. And Paul says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so Paul starts out in verse 22 by saying that Timothy should flee the evil desires of youth. And so Paul is instructing Timothy to avoid these sins that are so common um, to young people. Timothy is likely somewhere in his 20s or 30s, uh, late 20s, early 30s, when he's receiving this letter. He's uh, got a prominent position within the church. Um, And among these these, uh youthful desires, evil youthful desires that, that Paul is talking about, among them are likely lust, uh, selfish ambition, again, Timothy being a young but prominent leader in the church, uh, hot-headedness, stubbornness. 
And Paul is, is instructing Timothy to flee these things. It was, the, the word flee here um, translates to literally running. It's an image that Paul is, is creating of, of actually getting up and running away from something, and specifically running away from danger. There's this connotation of running from danger within this word, which I think is a really apt word choice, that Paul's instructing Timothy, run away from these things, from these evil desires of youth, um, because they are dangerous to you. They are dangerous to your spirit. They are dangerous to your ministry. You should flee them. And so you may be sitting out there saying, well, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of past this. I'm past the, the evil desires of youth stage of my life that's kind of in the rearview mirror for me. But I don't care if you're 16 or 60. Um, we all continue throughout our lives to, I think, still deal with those evil desires of youth that, that we walked through when we were young. You know, um, oftentimes uh, I will have what I'm going to deem um, or label as a youthful moment. When I have a youthful moment, my, my wife will look at me and, and say, oh my goodness, I'm married to a seven-year-old. And most of the time that's, that's a, a, a thing of endearment. I do something that reminds her of... Um, when we first met each other. Um, but sometimes there is a note of, oh my gosh, you actually are acting like a seven-year-old right now. And I think that that probably won't stop whether I'm 27 years old right now or when I'm 67 years old. Um, we all continue, uh, whether it's the endearing qualities or the not-so-endearing qualities, I think we continue to wrestle with those our life. So I think we all can still learn, no matter what your age, from this uh, idea that, that Paul is giving Timothy to flee the evil desires of you. We have to continue to flee. We can't stop running. And so there's a don't. There's a uh, uh, something that we shouldn't do. We should avoid the, the evil desires of youth. But, but there's another side of that that Paul gives us. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And so Paul gives direction to that first part of his statement by urging Timothy not only to flee the evil desires, but to pursue the spiritual virtues of, of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's not enough to just run away from the, sin, from the sinful things in our lives. We have to purposely pursue the good things. To, to put this into a geographic image for you, um, imagine you live in the middle of Iowa, in the middle of cornfields. You get to a point where you say, I just have to get away from cornfields. I need to go to the Rocky Mountains, get um, get away from these cornfields. If you just walk out your front door and start running without direction, uh, there's there's a pretty good uh, chance that you may just end up in the cornfields of Minnesota or the cornfields of Nebraska or the cornfields of Illinois if you just go out without direction, without purpose. And I think the same is true with our sin. That if there's, there's a sin that we just... We need to get out of, we, we, we're convicted by it, and we just run away from it without direction. We might find ourselves just stuck in a different sin. We have to flee with purpose. We have to pursue. We need to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and above all, Christ in our lives, in our attitudes, and our actions. And the end of this sentence uh, shouldn't be forgotten either. He doesn't, he doesn't end on pursuing those things. He says, pursue them along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That is so important. This isn't a solo project that we've been given. This is something that we're to do together. 
This is something that we, God has given us relationships. God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ to support us in this pursuit. That's why I think um, within our church, life together groups are great. Because it's a smaller group that can we can support each other in this pursuit. We got those starting up next week. If you're not plugged into one of those, I just want to take a moment and plug that and say, I think that it's a really great and valuable thing to get plugged into because this isn't a solo thing. If it is a solo thing, um, we're going to have trouble with it. We're going to have a lot more failures along the way. We're supposed to pursue these things along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul continues, and he, he says to Timothy, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And so Paul, and, and this isn't by accident, he starts with um, with the thought of, of us looking inward at ourselves and fleeing these things, and the, fleeing the wrong things of life, the youthful uh, evil desires, and, and pursuing um, the spiritual virtues. And that's not by accident. These are important things for us to do as we focus on then moving outward. Paul says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. And so uh, we can gain by context here that, that this was something that uh, was an issue where Timothy was ministering, that there were these public arguments just about things that um, really didn't matter, but they produced these quarrels that were much bigger than um, they, they should have been. And so Paul is instructing Timothy, have nothing to do with those. It's not like avoid those, do your best to avoid them, have nothing to do with them. And so there are two words here that he, he uses to describe these arguments. You've got um, foolish and you've got stupid. And so the word foolish here can also be translated uh, to the word ignorant or uneducated. And the word stupid, the, the Greek word there, is actually the base for the word that we have in our English language for moron or moronic. Um, so this is, this is pretty clear and strong language as to what, um, what Paul thinks about these type of arguments. This thing have nothing to do with these ignorant, uneducated, moronic arguments. And so this is, um, this is what Timothy was dealing with in a public arena, but I think that we deal with this on a daily basis um, in our own lives today. And so what, is, what does that look like today? What are these foolish and stupid arguments? And as I was thinking about this, um, a couple of images just kept popping into my mind of, of what a foolish and stupid argument looks like today. I think it looks a lot like that. For those of you who might not be as tech savvy, um, we have the icons up there for, for several different social media outlets in the world. I'd say social media is a breeding ground for foolish and stupid arguments. I've seen marital disagreements spill onto Facebook. I've seen friendships end on Facebook. I've seen one Christian completely rip apart another Christian on Facebook in front of everyone. This is a public foolish and stupid argument. I think that this is, this is how we are dealing with, with this idea today. Maybe the number one way. We are dealing with. Social media is a, is a public forum with an endless supply of opportunities for foolish and stupid arguments. There's plenty of bait out there, and we're really good at snatching up that bait. 
So in Paul and Timothy's day, these arguments took place uh, in person in a public forum. But in today's world, much of these type of arguments take place from the comfort of our desks or our couches. But the idea behind all this is still the same. Have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it. Think before typing. Think before hitting enter. And the real damage of these arguments comes from the quarrels that they create. There can be a foolish and stupid argument that, that seems insignificant, that the subject matter of it um, doesn't seem so important, but they can stem these quarrels that really get into the core of relationships. The end result is oftentimes conflict within the church or the lost opportunity to minister to someone who doesn't know Christ. That's the end result of things. And so for that reason, Paul instructs that the Lord's servant should not be prone to quarrels. Quarrels are a cancer, an absolute cancer to one's ability to minister, for one's ability to um, effectively communicate the message of the gospel. Whether it's to the person that we're fighting with, having an argument with, or quarreling with, or for those around us that are seeing us as quarrelsome people and say, if that person's part of the Church of Christ, I don't want anything to do with them. Because I see them as a quarrelsome person. And that's not something that I want to add to my life. And so the same is true of us as we serve the Lord and minister um, for Him. And so in contrast to the quarrelsome servant, Paul advocates for the servant who is kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. And so these are the qualities that God desires and a servant. And they are qualities that draw people in. Those are magnetic qualities. The kind person. The person who can effectively communicate. The person who, who doesn't hold a grudge. The person who isn't resentful. That's the type of person you want to be around. That's the type of person you want to listen to. They're magnetic qualities. And that's what Paul is advocating that we as God's servants should have. And being kind to everyone uh, is, is easy when everyone is being kind to you. But the idea here isn't just kind, but kind to everyone, regardless of what's coming our direction, whether a person is being kind to us or whether they're attacking us. God has called us to be kind. God has called us to be able to teach. And now Paul is specifically talking here to Timothy, who's a church leader, but I think even if you aren't necessarily an upfront church leader teacher, there's something to be learned from this that we all should be able to effectively communicate what the message of the gospel is, why we believe in it. Uh, Peter advocates that in 1 Peter 3. He says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. God calls His servant be able to teach, to be able to effectively communicate the hope that we have in the message of the gospel. And Paul, the last thing on his list is to not be resentful. And the word for resentful here means to exercise uh, a patient forbearance, if you will, um, as those as people oppose you, as people attack you. A patient forbearance. That even in the midst of, of a disagreement that may not even be very civil. We should not hold a grudge that we should not be resentful. These are the characteristics that God desires. And He desires them 
for a purpose. Paul continues in verse 25 and he says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And this is the thrust of this entire thought leading up to this. It reveals the purpose behind all of this, for why we should flee evil desires of youth and pursue these Christian virtues, for why we should avoid pointless, stupid, foolish arguments, but instead be kind, able to teach and not resentful. Timothy had no shortage of opponents. The same is true for Paul. And oftentimes these opponents caused them great harm. Later in this letter, Paul uh, references a guy named Alexander the metal suit, or metal worker, um, who has done him great harm. There's no shortage of opponents for Paul and Timothy. And the same is true for us. There are no shortage uh, of opponents to the Church of Christ. They are many. Um, many of them hold positions of influence and authority. And harm, whether or not it's physical, it may be physical, it may not, harm very well may come to us at some point. But our number one goal within all of that cannot be to defend ourselves. That's the natural desire when someone comes at you with fists raised, so to speak, to put your fists right back up and defend yourself. But that cannot be our number one priority. Paul's calling Timothy to gently instruct his opponents rather than antagonize. And this is to be done in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And this is an important point to remember, that we have truth on our side. We have truth on our side. Winning is easy when you have truth on your side. We can win. We can win the argument. But that isn't enough. That's not what we've been called to do. We haven't been called to win. We've been called to win over the God. Winning is easy, but it doesn't do anything. And there's a hope in here that it isn't all up to us, that it isn't, you need to do this, you need to change this person's life. We need to gently instruct and trust that God is going to do His part, that God is going to do the heavy lifting and lead them to repentance in this knowledge of the truth. But that must be our number one goal, is not just winning, but winning over. And when we have winning over as our number one goal facing opponents. God will move. God will come through. God is faithful. You can do that with full assurance. So we have to have winning over as our priority. And this is done with gentleness, not aggressiveness. It's done with kindness and not with malice. And it's done with love, not hatred. And those things are difficult in the face of opposition. Especially when that opposition is aggressive. Especially when that opposition um, comes at us with a great deal of malice or hatred. We are called to be kind to others. To gently instruct. And so I encourage you in your interactions with people with opposing viewpoints to keep this in mind. To have winning over and not just winning as your number one priority. Opposing opinions um, people who, who have opinions of, um, that, are, that are contrary to the, to the gospel of Christ are, are only going to become more vocal as we approach this season of the election. And we must be careful and deliberate in how we choose to respond to that. We can't respond off the cuff. 
you have to be careful and deliberate in that response. So as we talked about at the beginning of our study this morning, there are misconceptions galore out there about Christianity. There are people that think that it's just a bunch of things that we're not about to do, or that we're not allowed to do. But that's an incomplete recipe. That's not what the Church of Christ is all about. That's not what the Gospel is about. And we're called to gently instruct those who have those misconceptions. And in coming to the knowledge of that truth, we pray that as Paul says in verse 26, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's the reality with all The devil has people captive. Only knowledge of the gospel, only repentance and knowledge of that truth can free them from that bondage. God has chosen to use us in communicating that and instructing those who have those misconceptions. So I hope that you're encouraged by this. I hope that as we move into this time of, um, of the election season and, and things just get more and more vocal and um, perhaps um, harder to deal with, that we would remember this. And not just when mid-November hits and we're done with this, but as we continue throughout our lives following Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message of the gospel, that it is the truth, and that we have that on our side. So I pray for us as your followers that uh, we would be quick to follow you. We would show the qualities of kindness. You would assist us as we communicate the message of the gospel, Lord, and that we would not be resentful. I pray that you would use us to bring community to church and as just your, your church as a whole to do great things in this world. We pray for each and every person who has not made that decision to Christ. And you may use us to bring them to the point of repentance and knowledge of the truth. Lord, we trust you. You will do a great work in this world and you are faithful to come to you on that point. So we thank you for Christ that it's through him we have this knowledge. Thank you, Alex. It's our custom here at Berean uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. And we practice open communion. That means if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you received him by faith as your Lord and your Savior, you are welcome at this table. Because it's not my table, it's not the table of the Breen Community Church. It's Jesus' table. And he's the one who invites you here. But just to kind of piggyback off of what Alex shared today, think about this. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who put on flesh, he came to earth. He could have won the argument that I am God, couldn't he? He could have won that argument. He could have said, I am God and I'll show you and brought judgment on this earth. But it wouldn't have brought redemption. Jesus chose to win a different argument. 
He chose to win the argument with sin. To settle that account. That we as men and women need a savior. And we needed somebody to pay that price. And it was Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who did that for us. Earlier, at the beginning of the service, we sang a song called Agnus Dei, which in, in Latin means Lamb of God, which comes out of John, where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Today, at the end of this service, we're going to celebrate remembering what Jesus did to win that argument with sin. That we are no longer condemned, but we are indeed made righteous by his sacrifice. But we also come to this table sober and, you know, admitting the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior. In fact, we at this, uh, our custom here is to really examine ourselves with the instruction that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Therefore, for whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body of, of the Lord, body and blood of the Lord, and a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord and eats and drinks, without, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. If we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we, will, we are being dis disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So we're just going to take a few minutes here, and Myrna's going to play softly in the background. And I'd ask you to say, Lord, show me where I'm out of sorts with you, where I am rebelling against you. And confess those things. And remember the promise in First John that says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we'll come to this table remembering what Jesus has done to purchase us for himself. So let's just take a few minutes and ask the Lord to search our hearts and confess to him.